0: Hey Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But yeah, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it's it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app. It's better it's so on video. So easy to use. It's, it's, it's better, really better on video. Easy. Download got... the app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it and then. You In press, the United States. Press the button, and there it is. There it is. And you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexperts Briefing Room. a new series. Briefing
1: Room? What is that?
0: I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way to Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you can <laughs> find it on the Trek Treksports podcast feed and on the new Treksports Briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see What's out there? Hey, this is Mark A. Altman from Inglorious Trekkers in the 4:30 movie. And if you're a James Bond fan, you want to pick up my new book, Nobody Does It Better: The Complete Uncensored Oral History of James Bond and Spy Mania. It's a hefty tome, and it's available now wherever you purchase books, audiobooks, and digital. Check it out, and I will renew your license to kill personally.
2: Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How
3: are you doing today, Josh?
2: I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself?
3: Can't complain.
2: Uh, We are very excited to have on our guest today, screenwriter Mr. Eric Luke. Uh, You might recognize... (laughs) <laughs> Hello. Some of his TV credits from animated shows like Gargoyles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Uh, and he's also the screenwriter of a movie that was near and dear to my own childhood, and that is Explorers, directed by Joe Dante. Uh, maybe now almost in some ways most notable for starring a young Ethan Hawk, as well as River yep. Phoenix. Um, But before we get into that, why don't we just get your origin story, where you came from, how you got in the business leading up to
1: Explorers? Um, Well, I'm one of those kids who picked up a movie camera, you know, when I was 12 and just started making movies, monster movies.
2: We're talking first and foremost.
1: Uh, 16. Oh, wow. We had a wind up, uh, God, what was it? Not a bell and how, but it was a wind up 16 home movie camera. And so there was a huge cartridge that you had to pop in and pop out and send off to Kodak. And it was it was an amazing time. So I was cutting film right away, um, you know, as to to make those movies work and also editing in my head as I was filming so I wouldn't have to. Edit so much later on. So anyway, I was was when you had when you
2: say edit. I'm just trying to envision because I I only used uh, Super Eight a little bit when I was younger. Did you have that that kind of big plastic monstrosity that you would wind (laughs) it through and tape it? Did you tape it
1: or glue it together when you would edit? So with with sixteen, there was actually a big metal block, and you had to scrape the you know. on, on one side, scrape it and then paint it with this glue and then oh, slap wow. it together and <laughs> clamp it so it dried. Yeah, it was amazing. And then we had this big clunky uh, projector um, which uh, you know I got to show my movies on, which was which was great. Anyway, that stayed with me all the way up till UCLA Film school and uh, back at a time where there was no conduit from the school into the industry um you know subsequent to that people actually go people from the industry the industry actually go to the screenings and look for you know somebody yeah. the next big but at that time you know spielberg and lucas were just making their start and there wasn't this idea that you know there was money to be made in in these hot young guys it okay, was just I was like ask nerd, if there nerds. was a,
2: <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask if there was a rivalry between ucla and usc but maybe that was too soon it, you know, everybody
1: was in their editing rooms, quietly doing their stuff. There wasn't any time <laughs> yeah. to really, you know, they, they, we didn't meet in the back alley or anything. Uh, <laughs> um, so I guess every once in a while you'd hear about something USC was doing and they had the reputation for being rich kids. So, you know, at <laughs> yeah. UCLA, we were always, we were, uh, you know, we we're pulling ourselves up by our own whatever. So yeah. Um, Anyway, I got out of UCLA with a uh, student film called Dark Ages, and that got me into an agency. And Dark Ages later got made at Fox Saturday morning as a show called Cyber Nine. uh, I was going to
2: ask, what's what's the quick premise of Dark Ages?
1: It's a wandering samurai with a cyber... Which is a sort of a spear with a uh, an eye on the end. That's uh, and they talk to each other through the whole thing. It's all oh, it's cool. all character. Um, and it got remade at Fox with a kid, but the cyber design was still the same, which was which was gratifying. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that's out there. I mean, everything's out there now. Yeah. But <laughs> you, you can. So. Um. Anyway. uh um, yeah, right out of there, I just started writing scripts, and I got the agency, and they said, "What have you got?" And I went, "Well, <laughs> not much." <laughs> so, the idea for Explorers came as I was I was had these jobs in the special effects industry, you know, doing editorial library and all this, and uh, driving home one night, looked up at the moon and said, "When I was a kid, I used to pretend that I was building my own spaceship." And so it was lightning hitting. And I thought, yeah, that's because ET had just been really big. And I thought, well, this is the answer to ET. It's, you know, our kid going out there and uh, wrote it. And the first draft got sent out by the agency. Everybody passed on it, except for a guy named David Bombick, who was the producer. He picked it up and took it to Paramount and it all clicked. And it got picked up there and i got picked up on a contract for uh you know for like a stable of writers which was unheard of at that time too so (laughs) it was pretty pretty heady stuff i I had no idea what i was doing
2: (laughs) you've already answered a question i was going to ask about and i don't know where this rumor came from and it never quite made sense to me because it was a paramount movie but there is i don't know if you know you're aware of this online there's a rumor that spielberg initially bought the script because he wanted to use a scene from explorers where the kids ride their bicycles through the sky uh
1: (laughs) and i'm like that one like
2: i'm like i don't know how it would have ended up being owned by spielberg to getting made at paramount uh so so this was all after et so that I feel kind of definitely answers that question.
1: <laughs> yeah, and in fact, one of my the big meetings, I remember at that time, cuz I got to meet with my film heroes. I I met with George Miller. Um wow, and yeah. had a oh, big nice. creative meeting with him at a at a hotel about he they were he was going to direct Golden Child at the time, which eventually got made differently, but Daddy they said Murphy oh.
2: movie, yeah. A- huh. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> so, he was originally attached to that. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, different oh, totally. concept. And any he was throwing ideas back and forth. And I got to sit with him for three hours, just, you know, sort of mind. It was fantastic. <laughs> and I got to meet Spielberg. So he called me over to Amblin and said, well, you know, I was interested in Explorers, but they I, I kind of bought it before I could really focus on it. So. We sat down for a couple of hours and, you know, had just threw ideas around. and But he never said that he wanted the kids to, to fly on bikes. So <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I think, yeah. Yeah, I don't, who um, knows
2: how these rumors start? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it, Is it true um, that Wolfgang Peterson was initially going to direct Explorers? Okay.
1: Yeah, he, that was so real that they flew us over to Germany to meet him. And it was right after Das Boot to the point where we, he walked us through the set, you know, of the, uh, oh, with the submarine cool. and everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh,
3: wow. That's amazing.
1: So that was exciting. and I mean, he had just finished Never Ending Story. That was in the editing Okay, in the I was gonna list.
2: ask, I was kind of curious why they were looking at the guy making DOS Boot for Explorers. Okay, that timeline well, makes it, sense It was then. gonna give
1: a, a, hard, a hard edge to it. Yeah. And when they saw the first cut of Never Ending Story, there was some awkwardness with the kids with the uh, where he was directing in English. And they, they said, Oh, let's, let's go our separate ways. Um, this isn't the same image that, that we have.
2: Although it is interesting to think of the kids, I guess for those listening who haven't seen Explorers, one thing you should go watch it. It's on Amazon mm-hmm. prime. Uh, I Thank checked, um, but uh, just quick version of it is Yeah. It's about these kids who before they're even building a spaceship, it's that they kind of develop this technology to form this airtight sphere that they can like change the size of. And eventually they realize like, Oh, if we could build a ship and put the sphere around it, we can take it up in the sky into outer space. And I always love that they build their ship out of a old tilt-a-whirl uh, that they find tilt a war tilt-a-whirl car. Uh, but yeah. I guess yeah, now I'm yeah. just envisioning the, the DOS boot angles of that of them being in this little airtight sphere out in space yeah
1: yeah there was definitely a world war ii feel yeah. to it which uh never got explored it, it was more it was from a different junkyard definitely that the spaceship That's... got made well and oh, since wow.
2: i was gonna say one thing we talk a lot about on the podcast not just movies that never got made but versions of movies that did get made that we never got to see and i and i know that explorers is a movie that changed a lot uh through the production and i'm kind of curious what was different about your very original script even before you guys reached production because i know that you were rewriting a lot even while you were shooting but like what was that very first script that went out that paramount was interested in
1: so the first concept, my first draft, was that the message, so they have a dream at the beginning, a shared dream, the three boys, which is sort of what bonds them together, because they're not friends. They're so, they sort of know each other, but then the three of them are bonded by the fact that they've had the same dream. And um, they're given this idea of, you know, this concept of this sphere, and then everything goes from there. In my original concept, that dream was also a cry for help, that they needed them not only to build the spaceship, but then to go and it was this ancient Martian civilization. I and mean, it was it was a boy's adventure. So they go to Mars and there's um, you know, this subterranean uh, and there's the the last uh, the, la- this, the last survivor of the Martian civilization wants to give them the secrets, you know, before other bad aliens come and take it from him. So there's, you know, there was much more high adventure towards the end.
2: Yeah, little John um, Carter of Mars in there.
1: Ex- exactly. And first man in the moon and the Selenites yeah. and, and all, all kinds of sort of classic science fiction tropes. Um, but uh, so Joe's concept in that they, you know, not to spoil the ending, but when they get to space, it's other kids alien kids who have reached out to them because they're really taken with earth culture. Mm -hmm. And so between the two of them, there's some disappointment. It's like, is this (laughs) all there is? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, that third act was eventually arrived at. It went through all kinds of other concepts and, you know, because the first two acts were always really solid, getting the concept, going through the adventure of building the ship. But then once you get to space, you know it was anything goes and as this kid coming into paramount and really just open to the whole experience um i i it's not that i i blame myself but i never took a firm stand and said here's my concept i think we should you know this is what i think we should do Uh, but joe dante brought his you know joe dante world to it uh so that it's this you know, he was just off of Gremlins, so. Yeah, I was going to note that sort of for the. Crazy energy, Warner Brothers energy to it.
3: Yeah, because it's totally like his uh Twilight Zone story. The makeup and that totally matches. I used the same guy, I believe, uh, uh, Rob Bottin. Yeah. And uh yeah, so I kind of like that uh, aspect of it because like the aliens are so different looking to this day. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, but, oh, yeah, one of the one of the endings I read about was they end up on a world where there were towering giants.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't <laughs> that yeah, no I worries. remember. About. Yeah, and, then, and then another <laughs> one
3: I read was it, it lands in a, the ship lands in an alien junkyard and they have to save it from an alien sanitation compactor.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> That's I, it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, they just sent it? me a poster. They just re-released the collector's edition. Over at Shout Factory, and as part of the, um, oh, I love that. This was like the 20th anniversary or 25th anniversary. Um, that's one of the alien designs, except given this, you know, treatment so that it doesn't look as cartoony. It just looks uh, interesting. Anyway, I thought that was yeah. a great.
2: Uh, and I guess it's a good time so, to listen for our listeners. If you get the electric now app, which is a free app, <laughs> uh, you can look at the video of Eric holding up that picture.
1: <laughs> oh, that's um, right. That wasn't really good for. <laughs> for <laughs> now, but it's, it's a... great
2: for uh, uh, that thing. Um, yeah, but there's another there's version at- of it on that, right?
3: Uh, on that Blu-ray, yeah. I believe.
2: Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. I got to yeah. check that out.
1: There's the other cover. That's that's the Blu-ray version, oh, which yeah, was a, also great too. more great artwork. Um, mm-hmm. Well,
2: because I know that this was always one of those movies that, uh, you know, even kind of pre-internet. I don't know how I ever heard anything about movies before the internet. But knowing yeah. that there was supposedly like, like Dante had said in some interview that there was an hour and a half of footage that went unused and just trying to imagine like what else was going to happen. this movie can you talk a little bit about that process of because I know that they were making you guys like like didn't this kind of just get hurried into production and the idea was kind of like you can fix it all while we're shooting Mm -hmm. which is always a dicey idea
1: and and that was an education too I always thought in film school even you got the script right and then you got to shoot the film so for me starting without a finished script was just you know, there was no safety net. <laughs> yes. And every day, Joe would give me notes about dialogue or concepts for the next day. And I'd go home and go, oh, oh, crap. <laughs> um, but um, they they pushed up the release date and there was a regime change right in the middle of it. Um, and so the new regime came into Paramount and said, I, we don't really know what this is, but we just, we're just gonna release it. So this, you just have this amount of time. And Joe was basically saying the movie's not finished yet. You know, and they said, we don't care. You have to release it. <laughs> yeah. So that's always been one of his, in fact, on the Blu-ray they interview him and, you know his regret about what the film could have been is really uh, palpable. Um, but, so there's some, some, some good news right before the uh, pandemic, Paramount called back and said, it's been 30 years. Um, we want to buy the rights again. The rights are reverting to you. We want to buy them back again because there's interest in making something from it. So Kerry Fukunaga and David Lowry, this is, was, if not their, you know, one of their really favorite films from when they were kids. And they're involved in developing for a TV series. um, Oh, that's cool! Explorers, yeah. Um, Nice. So, yeah, that was very exciting. And then, of course, last year, and uh, you know, it hit, and there was total silence. But they just (laughs) re-upped their option again, which means that they're still interested. But I haven't heard anything in in eighteen months. But to get a call after 30 years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, that's great. And, and, and I actually thought it was a joke at first. I went, no, no. no. That classic. <laughs> who is this, uh, who is this yeah. really?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, so on the Blu-ray, did you, there is a whole other cut of the movie? Is that what you're saying? It's not just deleted scenes?
1: Uh, right. There's footage uh, from a rougher cut. Okay, and it's not fully finished, but yeah, there is another longer version, which has a few uh, a few added scenes. There's I actually play a classroom teacher in the film because I had some acting experience too, and there was an extra scene with my character that I totally forgot. You know, it's never <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seen the light of day. I I didn't even see it in the in the dailies. I must have skipped a day, so I you know there I was. Yeah, oh, that's it's really cool. odd.
3: Yeah, I need to watch that version. Yeah, because I, I mean, I was a big fan of the movie. And uh, even when you watch that new Fantastic Four that came out a few years ago, the whole first act is just like
2: Explorers. No, that's what uh, my writing partner and I said when we watched that. Yeah, huh.
1: I, I i actually have not. I, I gave up on the Fantastic Four because I had been disappointed <laughs> yeah. previously. Um, but I mean, it's
2: not a what's... great movie, but it, it is that kind of, you know, what I'm sure what, everyone's interest in maybe doing a rebooting it or doing a TV series. There is just something really fun about the idea. And like you said, where your original idea even came from of kids, like basically building a rocket ship and going out of space by themselves without their parents.
1: Um, Yeah. 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 You enter the kid's world and actually the fact that it was, you know, 1985 and there was no internet made their world even more insular. So there's no, you know, if they had been these kind of nerds now, there'd be a huge online community of them that they could have been a part of. But back <laughs> then they're really isolated. And so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you they, they build the spaceship in the creek in back of their house. They're, you know, they really only have each other to talk to. Um, so if there's an updating of it, that has to be addressed. <laughs> uh, there's another film. Um, I th- God, the name escapes me, but it, I think it's called Super 8 or it's yeah, there. Yeah, J.J. Abrams. Train, that's it. And there's a train crash in that and this new technology gets released. And there's one scene where there's a little sphere flying around and crashes right through a, a wall. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> it was just straight. I thought somebody watched it and this is... <laughs>
2: I mean, that's a very J.J. J. Abrams yeah. type of lift. I mean, yeah, all the. it's funny because this is a movie that I think Probably a lot of people erroneously remember as being an Amblin movie because it really fits in with that kind yeah. of executive produced by Spielberg Goonies yeah. uh, vibe that was going on in the 80s. A lot of Joe jo- Joe Dante's movies, too, kind of yep. tonally overlap with that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so what then kind of career wise, what came after this and how did that lead up to your Jetson's script?
1: So, I was at Paramount under contract, and we were both looking for, um, you know, project. I would pitch a project, and they would pitch a project, and I mean, it was this amazing time of, you know, not having to go from studio to studio to studio. And I, I actually had a home, and I had a little office up in one of the old buildings. And you know, on my lunch, I would walk through the the the, the sets. There was a Brooklyn set that. Um, my mom grew <laughs> up in Brooklyn and I, we were visiting and walking through the sound stages. It's the and, classic uh,
2: like studio <laughs> dream.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was, I mean, what a dream. Um, so I really wanted this to continue. This was a great, but we just weren't finding anything. And they finally came and said, what about the Jetsons? And as a kid, I had loved just the concept. And we didn't have a TV set when I was a kid. My parents consciously said, no, you're, you're going to read. And so when, whenever I saw TV over at friends' houses, things really made an impression. I came away and they sort of stuck in my head for a while. And Jetsons was one of those things. And as a kid, I thought, that's just the coolest, you know. Um, so when they brought up Jetsons, and at the time they said, live action, Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn as George and Janet. And you know and so that sort of puts it right in the right time frame of what they were what they were thinking and probably Danny DeVito is uh, the boss is Facely, but um, yeah that
2: would make sense
1: <laughs> yeah so I went and sat down there was a an executive um, Sue Zachary and she and I went in and watched all I think there are only 25 or 26 episodes in the original run and we watched them all and Oh, within you know four or five episodes, we went. Uh, there's not much here. <laughs> I mean, the the you know there's a laugh track. They were trying to do what they did with the Flintstones, and obviously this high concept thing. Um, isn't it? Uh, isn't it wacky? Uh, there was a book called uh, "How the How Wonder How Wonderful the Future Was Going to Be." Was basically the idea. Wasn't the future wonderful? So it's the pasts look at what they think the future yeah. would have been. But that's not enough to, to, you know, you obviously need need more than that. Um, and they didn't have more than that. All they had was gags about, you know, when the Jetsons do exercises, they exercise their fingers because they're sore from <laughs> pushing buttons. <Yeah. laughs> uh, and th- That's sort of it, you know. Uh, aside from that, it was a this 1960s situation comedy, just verbatim put in this new setting. And you know Yeah, it was kind of as, like if the Flintstones was the honeymooners, Jetsons was kind of the
2: Dick Van Dyke show, I think.
1: It, yeah, absolutely. Um but uh and Dick Van Dyke show is a classic. You know, you get uh really I mean I can watch any one of those episodes now and still you know really find some great material in there. Um Jetsons weren't Anymore, more, you know, the, the personalities aren't incredibly well-formed. They're just, what if you took the typical, you know, husband, wife, family setup, maid, dog, mm-hmm. and put them in this setting instead, and then put a laugh track on it. Um, so this was my first script that I'd ever done that was working on somebody else's concept. I'd been pitching, you know, my own ideas up till then. So I was... Also lost looking at what's the core. I mean, since then I've sort of learned what's that, what's that, uh, what's the heart of it? What's that idea, that core idea that um, drives everything about it? And back then I I didn't really know to look for that, you know. And also if you try and uh, you know jam in something like, well, George is having a, a midlife crisis. The thing falls apart because it's too much weight. It has to be this sort of frothy, Mm
2: -hmm. you know,
1: thing, Um, or it has to be like a totally cynical modern take on it, um, with you know, with uh, grown-up gags and and humor.
2: Yeah, kind of. I don't know if you ever saw the Brady Bunch movie they
1: did. It's exactly what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Brady. You know. Um, your- which A, got raunchy at places, so yeah. <laughs> they didn't want to do that. And also, I met with Joseph Joe Barbera initially, and he was pretty old, and he didn't have the concept either. There was no source to go to to say, uh, "What is this?" Yeah, you know. <laughs> so that's why it. I mean, I handed in my draft, and I think the concept kind of, I, I think it was just in a development hell that sort of burned itself out and-
2: But I was gonna say, what what did you even kind of hit upon and what kind of story did you end up doing for it? If you can, I know it's a while ago, but-
1: It's real, I've actually been trying ever since we talked to remember what the, <laughs> what was going on. Um, no, nah, I, I, it's really odd, but that only existed on paper and it never got transferred to, uh, to uh, digital. And so I wouldn't even know where to look for it. But <laughs> I, I remember being frustrated. I remember not finding whatever it was that the, uh, what the whatever the core was of, of the concept.
3: Well, it was also like, ni- it's 1984, it is, a, it is a long time ago. And uh, were you at all gonna stick with the plan of uh, the 60s future? like point of view of the original Jetsons had, do you remember?
1: Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't updated. It was still a retro view of this future where everything was uh, clean and sleek and all the coffee tables were kidney shaped and, you know, all that that wacky. I mean, I think that's the appeal of it is mm-hmm. to look at that design and, and try and recreate it, you know, in, in real life. Like the and moving. they did a Flintstones movie at one point that yeah. where they, they're sort of trying the same thing. And mm-hmm. it's, oh, remember how great the cartoon was.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, like the yeah. moving walkways and all that. That would have been and plus like the, the the gadgets are so intricate, you know, so it must have been you're trying to do the story. And it's like you have to fit these intricate gadgets in with, you know, the budget of 1984, 1985 must have been a challenge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, yeah. There, there were no digital effects yet. It was all um, practical or um, miniatures. So, but so you basically just turned it in and then it just kind of slipped off <laughs> into I, I,
2: development limbo.
1: I, I never, I was waiting for notes and I, I never got any on the first draft and I went, Oh, that's how this works. I, I, uh, <laughs>
3: So like what Eric was saying um, in November 1984, it was announced that um, Eric Luke is writing the script and they were expecting to shoot in spring of 1985. And also it was also announced that same month that Chevy Chase and Goldie Horn are hoping to be reteamed for the project. And during the, for the release getting ready for the release of the Jetsons. They're also about to release 41 brand new animated episodes. So like how Eric was just saying, like he only watched like 25 episodes. What's crazy is that back in the sixties, that's all that there was. And they were being, I yeah, guess uh, they just
2: reran them over and over. I didn't realize there was that. Did, wait, did they actually end up doing that? New yes. 80s version? Wow, well, I don't remember that show at all.
3: No, I think you do. That's where Orbity came in.
2: Oh.
3: And all that stuff, which is oh, crazy.
2: So they would just air them all together then. Mm-hmm. That's I guess, interesting.
3: I didn't realize. I thought maybe Orbity and all that stuff was from back in the day. Yeah, it just, I just
2: assumed it was. Huh? Yeah,
3: because it just all blended in so organically with all the other episodes, you know? So it is kind of... So I guess, you know, so maybe that's why the project was being looked at you know it's like hey we're about to release all these episodes wow since it's going to be back out there again why not do a live action movie and you know the Flintstones wasn't even greenlit yet to be and then that would be the one that would eventually come out like you know was it like yeah not even 10 years later we get the Flintstones movie first and uh, yeah, so in 1984, that was the only announcement of a live action Jetsons. And then in October 13th, 1995, uh, Ted Turner, Turner Pictures announced like an, this 1996 slate. And this is something that we touched on back in the Johnny Quest episode. Like, um, It was a part of that Johnny Quest slate. Remember, we talked about like there was going to be a Gilligan's Island movie. Yeah. and stuff like that. So the Jetsons was going to be in there, you know, which would have been like uh, it kind of bums me out. Like what a cool slate of movies to have come out in the mid 90s, like the Johnny Quest and they were going to do a a live action. Scooby Doo was kind of touched in there as well. But we did get that like maybe five more years later, though. Uh, Early 2000s, I believe that was. All right. And so in 1996, uh, they were going to have this was the Greenlit Development Slate. And uh, the live actions Jetsons was going to be written by Scott, Scott Alexander and uh, Larry Karazinski. Oh, that's interesting. Karizuski. Yeah. Yeah. I always say the name wrong. <laughs> and uh, it was written by it was going to be directed by Chuck Russell, who I believe just came off of the mask Jim Carrey movie at that moment. And, um, yeah, I was lucky enough to read that draft, and it's, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, that's all I can say about Maybe it. Maybe we was, can get
2: Larry and Scott on at some point.
3: I, they got a bunch uh, of
2: cool unmade movies, so.
3: Yeah, I got, oh, uh, yeah, I'll save that discussion for another time. There's one in particular I would, I'm dying to know from <laughs> them. And then uh, March 18th, 1996, uh, Denise Dinovi came on as the producer. I believe, did she produce the Catwoman movie?
2: Um, Um, I'll look that up while you're talking.
3: Yeah, because she's going to kind of stay with the project for a while. Okay, so March 18th, 1996. So this is a few months later. And uh, so it looked like at this point, Chuck Russell was off the project and now Joe Dante was on to direct. And June, a few months later, Joe Dante Joe Dante dropped out uh, because of creative differences. And then July, Peter Siegel came on to direct. Huh. And And Peter Siegel, I think the movie, what was his movie at that time? Uh, I think it was like all, what was it? Peter Siegel, director.
2: I was going to say Denise DeNovi. She did do Catwoman, I mean, which is pretty dubious to have as your listed credit, but she did. Like Edward Scissorhands and Night Before Christmas, bunch of Tim Burton stuff, uh, Practical Magic, A Walk to Remember, um, tr- Sisterhood oh. of the Traveling Pants.
3: Oh yeah, so she's good. I'm. i my apologies. Crazy for, stupid
2: laugh. Yeah, my
3: apologies to bring up the cap. I'm. I'm so sorry. I don't know why that was the first one to <laughs> pop in my head. Not. Not to. Well, but you, you were know, th- right those, though.
2: She. Uh, no, that is those, who she is.
3: No, but those are all great projects. So, <laughs> you know. uh, but uh yeah. So. Peter Siegel came on. I mean, he eventually would go on to direct get smart. Okay. It looks like he was just coming off of naked gun 33 and a third. And uh, so he, he came on Oh, my fellow Americans. That was the other one. He okay. At that at that time period. And not professor to the clumps who would do a few years later.
2: Say, so he, my fellow Americans is a fairly forgotten movie at this point. That's the Walter Matthau, um, Jack lemon one. Something like that. I, I think uh... kind of their one part of their <laughs> post uh, grumpy old men like career resurgence. Oh, no, wait. Uh, was, Jack Lemon, Dan Aykroyd, and uh,
3: James Gardner? James Garfield.
2: Yeah. Oh, Jean-
3: oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I'm no, lumping
2: I... it in my head with all the Walter the... Matho, Jack Lemon 90s movies.
3: Yeah. I, you know, they're so funny, dude. I was thinking about those movies the other day, like Out to Sea, and then they yeah. did the Odd Couple remake. <laughs> so they had their little run there, which was kind of cool. Uh, All right. So Peter Siegel came on to direct in July of 1996. And then November 96, uh, Peter Siegel was moving to a different project called Pest, Pest Control. And I don't believe that one got I don't know that title. Maybe it got made as a different movie. And then he was also attached to the Johnny Quest movie that we discussed on that that podcast.
2: Oh, wow. With Fred so, Decker one?
3: Yes. And, but he was hoping to direct the Jetsons next. So he was like in November 96 attached to three projects, Dang. Pest Control, Johnny Quest, and the Jetsons. Guy was working. And, <laughs> uh, and then uh, it looks like that's when Ted Turner's pictures kind of made that downward spiral and uh it kind of everything kind of fell apart with all those projects unfortunately and then we'll fast forward to 2001 is the next time it gets announced and that was november 2001 and this is this is interesting it found like a new uh pair of pair of writers it was paul foley and dan foreman and uh, Denise Dinovi De no- De was still attached to produce, but these guys—they sold a spec script called *The Fraud Prince* in 2001. I-, I don't see that this movie ever came out. They also wrote another project called *A Chink*. might have to go back. <laughs> a chicken and a monkey walk into a bar, and it was a project pitched as *Midnight Run with Puppets*. So, uh. <laughs> so that never came out either. And then they were also attached to Scooby Doo Three, a live action Scooby Doo Three in two thousand two, which never came out. And I, I looked them up on Internet Movie Database, and I couldn't find any any sign of them on there. And then, but all the scripts, all the projects I looked up, they they doesn't seem like they got made. But they were getting announced for like projects like throughout those few years. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. And then in 2003, March, uh, the, that movie Bringing Down the House with um, mm-hmm. Steve Martin and Queen Latifah, Adam Shankman, the director of that, was attached to the Jetsons. 2004, uh, Sam Harper, as a, the writer, became attached and he wrote Cheaper by the Dozen and the uh, 90s movie Rookie of the Year. And Shankman was still attached in 2004, June 2004. And then we fast forward again to May 2006 and uh, it was going to be, they got a new writer again and it was Adam Goldberg, but this Adam Goldberg from that TV show that's out right now, the, the Goldbergs, Goldbergs. Yeah. Yeah. So he not was the attached. Actor. <laughs> no, not the actor. I had a double look that up. Adam F. Goldberg, excuse me. Yeah. So he was attached in May of 2006 and then in May, a, a year later, 2007 robert rodriguez was attached to direct and still with adam f goldberg as the script writer and you know denise dinova dinovi as the producer
2: around this when was he doing when was rodriguez trying to do his barbarella movie i think that's going to be a few years later later okay but he was talking
3: about doing the jet in 2007 he was talks between the Jetsons and the land of the lost with Will Ferrell.
2: Hmm.
3: So that's kind of interesting. And two years later, 2009, January, Warner brothers announced a live action Tom and Jerry movie that we just got like a couple of months ago. And they still were saying that uh, Rodriguez was still involved with the Jetsons. And then we're going to fast forward again to January, 2012, and January 2012, Kanye West did this like crazy three hour rant on Twitter. <laughs> and, um, and in there, not much has
2: changed, I guess. Yeah,
3: I guess not. Right. Oh, God. Right. Almost 10 years later. And, and it, within that rant, he, he was like, he said something about that he was going to be uh, a creative producer on the Jetsons movie. And, um, and then Denise Denovi came out and kind of denied the confirmation, saying that you know they had a conference call that was kind of exploratory. They had they probably had a meeting, and then during his little rant, he kind of you know, so it, so that that just happened because I remember going through researching the Jetsons. Like you cannot avoid Kanye West coming up for some reason now, and it's just uh-huh. because of that little <laughs> January 2012 rant, you know. All right, and then February 2012, um, Warner Brothers hired the producers. Who I I don't know if this came before. I don't know. Brooklyn Nine Nine that was later after 2012, right? I'm not sure, but anyway, the two the One writers of those shows
2: that feels like it's new, but I feel like they're they've made like seven seasons already. Times right, and
3: it's on the flying. final season now. Yeah, but the the writers of that show, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Uh, They came on board to write The Jetsons in 2012. And then January 2015, they announced that they were going to do an animated movie. And then in August 2017, uh, Robert Zemeckis was going to produce a live action pilot sitcom of The Jetsons. And that's all I kind of have for The Jetsons.
2: Uh, There was um, wait, What year was The Zemeckis one? 2017. Because, well, I'm trying to think if I don't remember his name. Maybe this is this must be the same one I'm trying to because uh, my writing partner and I were pitching a show with Conan O'Brien's company that never happened. Uh, and I won't talk about that because it's an idea we still want to do. But at the same <laughs> time, Conan O'Brien's company was also working with Dana Gould to develop a Jetson's animated show that was. I thought it was kind of a fun approach was they were, re- they were finally addressing, you know, in the show they live in these cities up above the clouds on poles. And they kind of were answering the question of like, well, what's under the clouds? Like the poles are clearly coming out of, you know, earth. Uh, what's what's happening down on the ground level. And it was kind of this interesting class system commentary. I mean, maybe that was like two, uh, too much commentary for a Jetson <laughs> show to really have. But yeah, I don't remember uh, if Zemeckis was involved in that one.
3: Oh, interesting.
2: But uh, yeah, it's, huh. it's it's funny how much money they've clearly spent trying to get a new Jetsons thing going. I wonder what's really... I mean, it seems like a show that's probably gonna, or a movie would be really expensive. I assume that's probably what's doing it in each and every time is that... <laughs> everyone's really leaning into all the flying cars and gizmos and that, that adds up after a while. No, I, I, I
3: agree. I could see in 1994 or if they were going to shoot it in spring, 1995. Yeah. yeah like, right after the how,
2: Flintstones had been a big hit.
3: I mean, how are they going to pull it off? I mean, it would have been interesting to see with the technology back then with the background stuff they you, I mean, I mean, you, I mean, I can't really say, I mean, when you look at Return of the Jedi and stuff like that, they clearly were able to do stuff. But but the gadgets and all that, that people know it of, I don't know how they would have pulled it off in the 80s. The 90s, I can somewhat see, because they did pull off the Flintstones, but again, it would have been kind of difficult. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see how... The... Yeah, I wish
2: they'd made really any of these. I would have been mm-hmm. very curious uh, how they would have turned out
3: yeah absolutely um, but the 2000s i mean I, I mean they the technology was definitely there you yeah, know they could have pulled off of a lot like of it
2: the moment has passed i don't know if kids are still <laughs> watching the jetsons kids. reruns like we were i mean they I, when we were kids they weren't actually even that old at that point mm-hmm. but, well they were always i mean when we were kids also don't forget we only
3: had so many channels and yeah. there and you couldn't like avoid the jetsons it was like the only thing that was we on so we were
2: forced to watch the Jetsons. Yeah, we were forced <laughs> when I, to watch when this. we were kids you had to watch the jetsons yeah, yeah so um,
3: that's why we know it so well we, we were watching it over and over again but today it's like you know it's probably on is it on boomerang i guess i know it's not on the cartoon oh, it's network. gotta be
2: somewhere probably streaming somewhere um yeah so, so right. it's well, that was our adventure through the history of unmade Jetsons movies. And now we'll loop back to our conversation with Eric Luke.
1: So I went back to writing my own scripts again at Paramount and then got pulled along over to Disney and uh, kept working over there, too. Um, and wrote and directed a couple of films over at Disney for Disney TV at the time. Um, the not quite human films were Alan Thick. Alan Thick, Yeah. And yeah Jay Underwood. I had the Disney
2: Channel as a kid. I watched those. Oh, OK.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. yeah and I was going to say, so then kind of where did your career shift? I know you implied a little bit that you have other unmade projects.
1: Uh, I got into animation um, through uh, it was at, actually connections I made up at ILM when we were um, shooting Explorers. Um, shooting the the post-production and there were a couple of guys up there um Nilo Rodas who had done some of the design on on of the original Star Wars which is fantastic and a guy named Phil Norwood who was uh, uh you know working with him and the three of us got together and developed this animation project for Lucasfilm and then it and then it went to Fox um so that was an eye opener too. I'd never done an animation project before. Um, and uh, well, can you tell us a little bit more about that one? Um, so it was uh, the first three episodes were exactly what we wanted them to be, or the first episode in particular, but then the toy line started to drive the storyline <laughs> yeah. which is you're not supposed to do and uh, you know they they checked the paper trail to see if there if people were saying uh, could you push this robot a little bit more or you know this vehicle and uh, no you don't do that uh, <laughs> count screen time for this vehicle you know um, but uh, yeah so that didn't go anywhere. Uh, you know, it's been a series of projects that have sort of are remembered in certain circles, and certainly paid paid the bills over the years. Um, you know, I now I'm I'm uh, writing and uh, producing uh, audiobook um, projects. Um, oh. I had one a few years ago on Audible that was on the bestseller list, and uh, it was called Inter- interference it's about an audiobook that starts to kill the people who listen to ah. it and you you realize that you're listening to it oh that's part great way through. That's so great. anyway yeah. it's a, it's an yeah it's a concept a high concept audiobook uh, but it did well it did well so that was that was artistically and creatively fulfilling and so that's what i'm doing right now is writing uh, writing novels
3: oh that's well, there was a project you had early on called Attack from Out of Space. How, how close did that oh, one get? Oh, wow. Uh,
1: that was a- actually the very first one that I wrote out of film school before all the stuff with Paramount happened. And some, pr- it was, uh, you know, every 50s sci-fi film jammed into one. Uh, and a producer picked it up, and we went over and, you know, pitched it around, and it never got made. But, um, yeah, got attack from outer space <laughs> do you it's remember amazing. more of the
2: the premise of that one
1: <laughs> uh there was a teenage rebel uh, in this small town and it starts to get attacked by every you know uh, 50s you know giant insects and aliens with huge brains and mind control and all that great 50s stuff um and he and his girlfriend team up with the scientist, the pipe smoking scientist and his love interest and the four of them, you know, at the end, uh, you know, duke it out with the giant brain that's controlling everything and blow it up. So,
3: oh, man. man, wish it you was got that. Wish you'd have got that to Joe Dante. <laughs> I
1: know. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it does. You gotta dig that one out. Yeah, that's too funny.
1: Uh,
2: I mean, maybe it's odd to circle back to the very beginning to end this, but it's just it you talking a little bit about I'm always really interested in this era of film school, just because, you know, it's still not really like law school or medicine or medical, you're know, becoming a doctor. Um, but there is kind of the feeling, I think with kids going into film school, that there is some kind of pipeline. Um, but, you know, back then, as you're saying, there really wasn't at all because there hadn't been the famous film school school grads yet, the Lucases yeah. and Spielbergs and all them. Like when you decided to go to film school, like what were you really hoping to get out of it or expected that might lead to? If you can even recall, I realize that's even longer yeah. ago
1: now. No, I, I had no idea. You know, I just knew that I wanted to make films. And as far as, you know, the future was, was a big unknown. Um, Cause when, when Spielberg and Lucas came out with their, with their top hits with Jaws and, uh, and Star Wars, it changed the face of, of movie going. You know, there were these huge, um, it was like the circus coming to town mm-hmm. and they would play in theaters for forever. And that had really never happened before. It was a new kind of movie that was so high concept that. You know, secondarily, Lucas became a star in the industry and in public and Spielberg also. I mean, Duel and Sugarland Express and all of that was there for film aficionados to say, hey, look at this kid. He's like Hitchcock. He's, you know. <laughs> but then Jaws just just changed everything. So with the idea that you could find a, a kid who would make the next Jaws or Star Wars, that then was what drew people because the, the money to be made on stuff like that was worth a risk on, you know, so many people who weren't gonna be the next Lucas. But prior to that, there was really still the studio system to get involved with um, and there was no real place, no slot for film school graduates to go in. So I actually, what happened to me my best friend who uh, I had you know, been making films with up till that point was uh, killed in a motorcycle accident. And I, upon graduating uh, and not knowing what I was gonna do became completely fearless in the, with, with the, this death sort of, you know, with me all the time, nothing was making me nervous anymore. And so I would just pick up the phone and call the head of production or call people that I, you know, things I never could have sort of pushed myself to do before. It really seemed minor uh, and kind of inconsequential. And that's when everything started to happen. So really, really. And I've always I felt that he's sort of been with me all these yeah. years uh, working on this. So
2: who were, who were your peers at UCLA at the time?
1: Um, Do you have any- so guys that are still working, um, there's, okay. There was a guy named Michael Miner who wrote RoboCop, who's one of the first writers on RoboCop. Um, there's, uh, uh God, the names are escaping me. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody went on to become a, a Spielberg Huge. or, a, Okay. yeah. Uh, there's a guy named Michael Nankin who's, who's directing, you know, A-list TV shows. Um, Dan, uh, 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 yeah, the names are gone, but he's he directed Sopranos and has been mm-hmm. uh, working working ever since. Um, I, I see their names, you know, every once in a while. <laughs> I should go look them up and uh, you can
2: edit them. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> no, because I was, I saw a screening of Repo Man a long time ago and Alex Cox yep. was there. Yep. And he, he was, was and there. What That's what reminded me uh, when you're saying is that, like, you know, things you don't know as a film fan, but that, like, USC was kind of considered that was like the rich kid's school. And Alex Cox felt that, like, all the 70s, you know, UCLA people, that was like the punks were at that film yeah. school. Um, and obviously, yeah. that has all changed as time has gone by. I don't think they really have that distinction anymore. But
1: yeah, so, like I yeah. said, I'm
2: sort of fascinated by that era of those oh, two yeah. film schools. Oh, I think in yeah. film school, you,
3: you did write a horror script called Nightmare. Do you remember anything about that one by any chance?
1: Oh, that was uh, uh, a. Um, it was supposed to be. This was supposed to really get made after several pro- pitching projects that just weren't getting made. I thought. I'll write a, a, you know, a bottle movie. It all takes place in one house and it's the lowest budget you can think of. Um, The monsters are growing inside the walls. So you don't have to, you know, so the house itself becomes this living thing and you don't ever really have to show it because, you know, again, all these effects would have been practical at the time. Uh, And, you know, uh, Halloween, the first Halloween was sort of a big, uh inspiration at the time too so the one the female character the babysitter who you think is just going to get killed right off the bat she's the survivor and finally comes up with a way of of killing the thing oh, that sounds um, awesome. I, I, yeah. I, I did a reverse <laughs> I, re, I did a reverse alien which i've seen done several times where the the monster at the end ingests her and then she bursts out you know like the chest oh, burster, yeah, except yeah, in yeah. reverse but anyway <laughs> oh man uh, those were the days yeah
2: <laughs> um
1: unless have you have anything that.
2: else steve i feel like that's actually a nice place to wrap things up
3: yeah i think that's uh yeah I, I mean yeah i mean i loved hearing all this stuff i love that i love that this era you know of, of stuff too and um yeah thank you I, oh you, you did mention honey i blew up the kid what was your version at all any different from the one that came out
1: no it was i was uh at that point being hired to um like they'd say make the script 15 funnier yeah
3: so <laughs> i I'd go and look for
1: opportunities for humor um the navigator i also worked on trying to you know pump up the dialogue and just make it moment right, the, to moment make it better oh flight uh, of the navigator Flight of the navigator excuse me uh, is a yeah, 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 yeah.
2: really weird uh, New Zealand movie by Vincent Ward.
1: Oh, I was like, I don't. Get, yes, no.
2: I, doesn't sound that. like the movie that would have had a comedy pass. In other words, <laughs> make uh, this
1: funnier. Yeah, <laughs> make it funnier. You... That,
3: that makes sense. It's very sim. It feels similar. Yeah, to Explorers. Very similar.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seemed like a good fit, but right. I did not never get a credit on those. It was just um, do your pass on the, and then it, you know, went through the the Disney uh, uh, factory.
3: Oh, right on. Oh well, thank you for
1: all this.
2: I, I, yeah, thank you so much for thank joining you. us.
1: Uh, wow, thanks you... for asking. I was re- it was great to get the get the call, get the email. Are oh, you on social
2: good. media or anything for people to follow?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Quillhammer is the name of the creative entity that uh, I did uh, interference under and ongoing projects. And look for the new take on explorers. Let's see where that goes. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll get a phone call at uh, who knows how many years, but uh maybe it'll work out. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome.
2: Uh and you can follow us on Twitter at Nevermade Film and we're on Instagram at best movies never made. Uh as we mentioned earlier, you can check out the Electric Now app, which is a free app that has movies and TV shows on it, and more importantly, video of our podcasts and all the podcasts at the Electric Surge Network. Uh, we'd like to thank our network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and
3: Stephen Scarlatta
2: saying we won't see you at the movies.